When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Manchester Internet Podcast. My name is Stephen Brilston, I'm your host today, and I'm joined by my colleagues Samuel Luckhurst and Tyrone Marshall, fresh from their trip from Thailand on Australia. Samuel, how are you today? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Nice to be back on um, the normal time zone after three different time zones, but it was a very, very enjoyable tour. I believe Ty and I promised another podcast from Perth, but we we failed on that Um on 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 that, I think that the on the Sunday after um, after our final night ahead of an evening flight, I think the the lobby at the the QT Hotel in Perth was a pretty zombified existence of, of journalists who'd who'd been worked to the grindstone and and had no more to give, no more to give. But an enjoyable few weeks nonetheless, I imagine. And Tyrone, how are you? It's nice to have you back on British soil. Thank you, Stephen. It's, it's good to be back. Um, fresh is not the word I would have used to, <laughs> to describe myself after um, after that tour and, and the travelling and the time zones. As, as Samuel says, it was um, it's very demanding, but it was great fun. And I'm sure I'm sure the listeners can forgive us for, for not offering a final podcast. It, it's fair to say we had very very little left to give of ourselves on um, on that Sunday. So yeah, um, I'm not I'm not sure they were missing out on too much there. Well, we'll make up for it today because we've got plenty to talk about. Samuel, we'll start with Ronaldo's situation. That's obviously dominated the headlines in the last few weeks. He returned to Carrot in on Tuesday morning with agent Georgia Mendes. And I noticed he responded to a post on Instagram this morning, which my first thought was, why is Ronaldo searching for himself on Instagram? But after that, he claimed that the post was a lie and he kind of called out the, the, the truth about it. Um, the post basically claimed that Ronaldo was adamant to leave and that Ferguson had intervened in talks on Tuesday. So I just wanted to ask you, really, what have you thought about Ronaldo's behaviour over the last few weeks? Because it has been an ongoing thing, hasn't it, while they've been on tour? Well, I think the, the most telling um, detail in it was the, the timing of his post while United were playing in, in Perth against Villa. He, he posted that uh, that picture of him working out in, in Lisbon, I presume, uh, at half time with United 2 0 up and their 320 something fluid forwards thriving without him again. And it's, you know, him and his team have, have tried to make him very relevant whilst he's not been playing for United. Uh, of course, you know, there's bit, there was the Chelsea talk, but then Chelsea briefed to the journalists on, on, on their tour in the States that they weren't signing him. Bayern Munich seem to have, uh, you know, quashed any prospects of him going there so then it's okay what's another probable possible exit route maybe Atletico Madrid and Atletico Madrid fans have been pretty quick to try and um, you know uh, end any possibility of, of him going back to Madrid and going going to the other side there uh, given his his association with them in the past not not so much the fact that he plundered so many goals against them but he he did take the mick out of them that time with the saying that he had was it five champions leagues and they had zero uh, when he was in the 
the mix zone at their stadium, I think. And then, of course, I think two or three weeks later, he scored a hat-trick against them to, to knock them out of the Champions League. So they're not particularly fond of him. So there's never really been a standout exit route for him anyway, despite these possible clubs uh, emerging. And, of course, when, when you're in that situation, you have to not necessarily grovel as such, but you have to... Um, you have to be professional. Now, of, of course, he, he missed the entirety of the tour and a, a family issue was cited. There have been things we've heard about other United player absences where you have you have legitimately doubted the reason for their absence on the tour. And of course, okay, he's away for a family issue or family issue in inverted commas. And then as soon as everyone else comes back, he comes back as well. And there's there's been another... There's been another Premier League club that has embarked on a pre-season tour where there have been some players absent, and it's been very, very obvious why those players have been absent. And you know, people can join the dots for themselves. I, I don't have to say it. And so now where, where Ronaldo is back, and Ten Hag did say during the tour that he would be integrated back into the squad when he was there. He was never going to do ball work or doing the core part of training at the start of the week, given that he's not not trained properly um, in, in, in the preceding uh, three weeks where, where Ten Hag has had all that face time with the players, three or four weeks, in fact, I can't remember. Um, so you know, it's, it's it will get to a point where, you know, probably within the next week, maybe before the end of this week, that he will, he will train with the squad. I, I still think there is maybe an outside chance that he will that he could be involved in that game on, on Sunday against Vallecano. I think it's safe to imagine that he will not be going to Oslo with the, the core squad that Ten Hag has settled on that is likely to make up his team, his squad, for that first game against Brighton next Sunday. But it, it wouldn't surprise me if Ronaldo is is involved in some some way or form against Vallecano on, on, on Sunday. But United have been very, very cautious about Ronaldo in that they don't that they refuse they were refusing to offer any guidance on whether he had actually trained with them at the start of the week. They they don't want to say anything on his movement at all. Um, in regarding the Ferguson thing, I mean, it was a cast of thousands that arrived at Carrington on Tuesday, I think it was, wasn't it? And United clarified that he was there for a football board meeting. I, I didn't for one moment think when I saw Ferguson turning up, oh, here's, here he is to, you know, the godfather coming in to, you know, tell Johnny Fontaine what to do and, and right the wrongs of his life or anything like that. I mean, OK, he had a big part. He played a big role in Ronaldo coming back to United last season. I don't think he's going to have any role in what Ronaldo does between now and the end of the window, that's just wishful thinking. And some people saw it, they put two and two together, they got five. Uh, it's, it's not particularly controversial, but you, you could see that narrative developing from, from the outset, just because both of them were on the same site for a period of time. More, more significant was Richard Arnold being there, but then again, Arnold's not spent much time with Ten Hag, with the players, observed the mood been able to gauge it because he wasn't on the tour at all so he was probably always going to be um, going in but it was strange that someone at United felt the need to associate Arnold and, and David Gill when David Gill has no power he's just on this football board which essentially is a board that exists to keep people on the cap payroll and, and keep them sweet that's why Sir Alex Ferguson still won't call out the, the Glazer family because he's on a he's on a very nice salary he's got a row of seats in the director's box 
um, and he's still getting pretty enviable income. So uh, it feels like a lot has happened with Ronaldo this week, but in truth, not a lot has happened whatsoever. But th then again, I can fully understand people's interest in it. And he was certainly, even though he wasn't on the tour, when, when we were getting news lines on him, whether it was when we had our sit down with Ten Hag or um, gathering other information, other information, he he was still very much the, the big story. And as I said, that was completely understandable. Ty, I wrote an article about Ronaldo's legacy last week, and I kind of questioned what this is what it's doing it to it really. And obviously, no player is ever going to be bigger than the club. But I feel like there's been a shift in opinion the last few weeks. Obviously, supporters are understandably very annoyed at the way he's kind of expressed his desire to leave at this stage. Um, can he win back fans this season? And kind of what do you expect from his performances? Is it just going to be the same as usual? Back to business? Um, yeah, I mean, I think he'll win back fans. You know, if he scores a hat trick in, in his first game back, I think he'll he'll win them back very quickly. Um, I don't see that being an issue. At the same time, I don't think he cares really about his legacy at a particular club. His He sees his legacy to the game of football rather than to Manchester United or to Real Madrid. Um, you know, he's clearly pushing for this Atletico Madrid move. He doesn't care about his links to Real Madrid. He'd have gone to Chelsea, I think, and, and not cared about his links to United because he sees his legacy as, as bigger than being to one club. And he's clearly got an affection for United. But the reality is he doesn't want to play in the Europa League and, and you can understand that. Um, if he stays, then I, I think he's, he's too good a player and too professional not to knuckle back down and, and score goals and, and make an impact. But I think there'll, there'll be a lot of frustration there. And I don't, I don't see this being resolved, really, unless he goes until the very end of the window. I don't see him coming out and saying, I want to stay at the club because I think he'll want to leave his options open as long as it's realistically possible to get a move. And and situations may change. I mean, we a move to Atletico looks very unlikely, but, um, you know, it's not impossible. Their, their president has made pretty controversial decisions previously. I'm sure he can see the the um, the Euros in his eyes from, from commercial deals and, and things like that. So you can still see it dragging on um, to the point that he might not be involved much until until the end of August, maybe September, um, if he does remain at the club. And then I think the, 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 the big issue then, and the fascinating thing is going to be how Ten Hag integrates him because he's he's developed this very, very fluid, very fast front three, um, very aggressive when it comes to pressing front three on tour. And then he's got to slot Ronaldo into that. And that's, that's going to be possibly the biggest test of his management in his first season at United, how, how he achieves that. Because that, that front three of Martial, Santa and Rashford has looked really good. Um, Martial was excellent on tour. Martial, Santa and Dallow, I think everyone would agree, with the three best players. And yeah. Martial was was right up there. Um, Samuel's there when we've been told towards the end of the tour about how impressed Ten Hag has been with Martial's pressing and his, his intelligence of when to press and, and things like that. So he clearly sees him as a very viable centre-forward in, in his system. And the, the question is how he whether he sees Ronaldo in that way. And I think this is, this is probably given Ten Hag a bit more power in terms of how he handles Ronaldo, in that he, he maybe can take him out for some games, he maybe can drop him for some games. Um, but I still I still think that there's a long way to run in this yet. The, his options are clearly very limited, but I still think he will, he will want to keep his options open and he will still, if he's still here in the last week of August, I still think he'll be pushing to leave and, and looking to find a potential, a potential exit because I think that's and, and it always felt obvious that he was going to be desperate to play in the Champions League. He doesn't play in the Champions League this year. He's going to be thirty-eight next summer. Is any Champions League club going to want to sign him then? 
possibly not. So you're talking about if he doesn't get the move this summer, his career in the Champions League possibly being over. So you can see why he, why he's pushing it, and I think he'll he'll drag it out as long as possible. And if he does stay, then it'll be on Ten Hag on, on how to reintegrate him and how he how he sort of involves him going forward. I'm sure we're going to have these conversations, as Ty said, until the transfer window closes, aren't we? It's just the way it's going to be. Um, but sticking with strikers, Samuel, and, and sticking with the transfer news, obviously you've wrote the line today on Benjamin Tesco, um, 19-year-old from RB Salzburg. He scored against Liverpool in midweek. I'm sure United fans would have saw that and absolutely loved that. Um, so basically, what's the latest on him? And can you tell a bit about United's interest in that player? Well, I was told at the start of the week, I only ran it today because I've, I've been off and I think there was some um, some noise about him to United last week while we were on the tour still. But I was told that John Murta uh, met with Sesco's agent on uh, Wednesday last week. And his agent, you don't have to go too far to see that, that the agent is trying to to whip up a market and is, is very... Uh, is, is quite feverish about the potential of the player and is trying to capitalise on this on this you know, moment that, that Sesco is having. I can't imagine he's ever been higher up Google Trends than he has been this week, having just scored a winning goal against Liverpool. And there are a couple of clips from that game where people are saying, oh, he's like R9, which is you know, to, to certain kids who have no idea who that is. That, that is the Brazilian Ronaldo uh, which is obviously a leap and uh, not a particularly reliable um, reliable opinion at all. But that that just is one way of gauging the excitement around him. Uh, the fact that he's he's, he's only nineteen, he, he is already a, a full Slovenia international as well. United, of course, did look at uh, Brian Broby um, from RB Leipzig uh, as as a potential uh, attacking reinforcement. Ten Hag managed him for about four months last season when he was on loan at Ajax. He's joined Ajax permanently. Sesco would be a departure from the norm in that I don't think there's any connection whatsoever with Dutch football. So maybe the scouting department has been reopened at United and they've you know cleared away the dust and, and people have been let out of their cupboards and, and are fulfilling their roles again because the way they've gone about this summer so far, it has been... Quite, quite insular in, in some ways, and that it's just been Ten Hag's quite short by you know by their standards anyway wish list of players. But it's interesting that they're obviously looking at Anthony, who is a senior forward, a Brazil international, a player who Ten Hag knows well, who would fetch a fee in you know eighty million pounds or eighty million euros. However, way you look at it, it would be a substantial fee. But they are also looking at possible the possibility of recruiting uh, a more callow forward and I think Brobby's 20 or turn 20 this year um, it, it, it was something that they considered a few years ago I think under Mourinho when Casper Dolberg was of interest then when he was at Ajax uh, they were looking for a younger forward and then I think a year after that Malcolm when he was cracky I think he was at Bordeaux at the time he was he was a player of interest when he was about 19 at the time and of course he ended up going to to Barcelona and was getting some interest from Arsenal but essentially when you look at United's attack um, take Ronaldo out of the equation for the time being because he's not been playing they are an injury away from it collapsing it did it only took 45 minutes on tour to realize that 
Anthony Alanga, not realised, but just to be reminded that Anthony Alanga is not at the level United need from a starting attacker. Rashford you know, made a pretty underwhelming start in Bangkok, but I think as the tour progressed, he he got better and he he warmed up in colder climbs in in Australia. He was particularly good in the in the Palace game. I thought he he they got a response out of him in that Melbourne victory game that he was dropped. He came on, he scored, he was involved rather fortuitously with the. Um, with the second goal against Villa with, with the own goal, but he played a part, a key role in the first goal. So I think he had a pretty good tour overall, despite the first, certainly the start of it, it wasn't looking particularly great for him. And, and he was probably the weakest, one of the weakest players in that first half against Liverpool. But beyond that front three, and you've got Elanga, and then you've got three players who effectively are available for transfer, Palestri came on, did well, scored against Liverpool. Then we didn't see anything from him again. And apparently there was a story in the SPN Uruguay that suggested that he was going on loan again, which is to the surprise of absolutely no one. Ahmad just, I mean, he had a he had a hell of a reputation at Atalanta, but talk about the wrong club, wrong time, wrong everything. Um, he just looks a shadow of the talent that he was he was talked up as being in in Italy. And the fact that Ten Hag was playing him through the middle didn't do him any favours, but it was probably a gauge of what Ten Hag thought of the prospect of having him in his squad once the deadline is closed. Tahith Chong actually got more minutes than than Palestri, I think, overall, which was does seem remarkable. But then you remember he's Dutch, so there's, he's got that privilege. But again, I, I, you'd you'd hope from United's point of view they only triggered the extension of his contract just to try and get a fee for him this summer, as, as they've already done with Dylan Levitt. So the depth in attack, it's it's quantity over quality. It's pretty clear that Ten Hag does not want two or three of those players in his squad. So ideally, he would have a, a senior forward who's going to be um, you know, competing with the main forwards and you know, they can he can try and create a dynamic like City or Liverpool have got where you've got six, five or six senior forwards. Uh, they come in and out. It's seamless. They're all match winners. They're all brilliant. They all have a massive impact on the team and you try and cultivate that culture and you have a younger player who's more of an up-and-comer up who's going to be a project for the future possibly. But again, it's, it's easier said than done in that here United are, we're almost in August and it's pretty remarkable that the three out of the three signings they've made, not one of them is, is a central midfielder. They've they've got a centre-back, a, a full-back, an attacking midfielder. Those were three roles they needed reinforcements in, so they've got three of them. But the two priority targets have still not come in and they are fortunate in... In, in hiring Ten Hag, the, the players have adapted very quickly and, and very well to his demands and to his style and to his approach. And they've had a pretty propitious pre-season up until now. But if you're rating that transfer window so far, it is five out of ten at best because the outgoings has been non-existent. The only sale has been a player who last played for the club nearly two years ago uh, in, in Andreas Pereira. So there's... We we always say it. There's there's always there's always a hell of a lot of work to do with for United, and and that very much remains the case. And Sesco is not going to. I mean, one of the issues that Ronaldo has about wanting out with United is their, their market activity. Sesco is not a player that's going to 
convince Ronaldo, oh yeah, that that's a game changer. That will make me stay. But having said that, I think even if Frankie Dion was eventually extradited to Manchester, um, chained up in a crate, I, I still don't think that would that would appease Ronaldo um, because he, he's just that set on on leaving. Ty, before I ask you about Dijon, that led us quite nicely onto that question I was going to ask. I want to kind of open up to both of you. Was there anything said about Ganacho on tour? Because we just touched on Chong and it was rather bizarre, wasn't it? That he was getting brought on for minutes when Ganacho was amazing in the, the Youth Cup. He is still very raw, but I thought that was a strange decision to give Chong minutes over Ganacho. Yeah. 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 Uh, was he? No, it wasn't really mentioned. Um, I mean, the only time it, it the, the policy, I guess, was mentioned was in the final press conference before the Aston Villa game when Ten Hag basically stressed what well, I think he used the word generations didn't he the squad, the squad yeah. was basically split into three generations um and and the young players were clearly there mostly for experience and his his priority was building a team for Brighton to face Brighton on on August the 7th and you saw that with the selections I thought that Melbourne victory game the second game was when we'd see Garnacho and a lot of the other youngsters start but when he picked the same strong team it, it became pretty pretty obvious um I think I wrote in a piece there was eight changes across the four games and six of them were either enforced or, or players being no six of them were either enforced or players returning from injury so it, it was pretty clear what the what the priority was and it, it is probably strange that Chong's gone on ahead of Garnacho and he didn't get a single minute but I think Ten Hag made it pretty clear that his his policy on tour was to to build a first eleven ready to to face Brighton and start the Premier League season rather than hand out minutes to youngsters. And we can't go a podcast without talking about Dijon. Obviously, we've obviously touched upon him. He's the the big headline this summer. Um, Ty, still the deferred wage that's still going on with Barcelona. I asked you a few weeks ago when you were on tour, did you think the deal was going to go through by the end of the transfer window? And you said, "Yep, yeah, I probably would think so." Um, would you stand by that a couple of weeks later? And also, if he doesn't join the club. What midfield can we expect on the opening day? You've just kind of touched upon it there, but are we going to see Fred McTominay again with maybe Fernandez, or do you think Ericsson's going to come into that midfield? Um, I, I think I also said that De Jong, I thought De Jong might happen before the end of June. So <laughs> the record on this is uh, it's not it's not very good at the moment. Um, yeah, starting to have serious doubts. I mean, there, there's a feeling it it feels like it's got to happen just because it would be absolutely catastrophic for United to spend 12 weeks as it is so far. Is it, is it 12 weeks on next Wednesday, I think? In yeah, talks with Barcelona to not get it over the line. And I do have some sympathy for them at the moment. And this deferred wage issue is, is nothing to do with them. And you can fully understand De Jong's stance of wanting to be paid by Barcelona when they're splashing cash left, right and centre. I mean, they're... It feels like Barcelona's approach in the transfer market this summer is, is a complete embarrassment, really, trying to force players out, force players to go without money that they are owed, that they were told they were going to be paid, while signing players such as Lewandowski, agreed a deal for Jules Kunde yesterday. I mean, they're, they're kicking the can down the road, aren't they? And I think they are, they are going to be in catastrophic financial trouble when when these deals come home to roost and, and the fact that they've sold their TV revenue, they've sold their merchandising and things like that. I think they're they're just kicking the can down the road. But that's a that's a separate issue. You can understand De Jong's stance now that he wants to be paid. He was told he was going to get this money. That's that's fair enough. And it, it it's almost I, I it feels like it's got a little bit quiet on it purely because the, the the issue at the moment is between De Jong and Barca. United I don't think United could step in even if they wanted to and say we'll pay it. Obviously they could put a few extra quid on the, the transfer fee. 
that there's an, an outline deal in place with Barcelona. You can see why United would be reluctant to say, we'll give you half the money towards his, his wages, but it might reach a point where they have to make a decision on that either way. Um, but it it feels like it's got to happen just because it would be disastrous for United to spend so long on it and not and not get it. And in terms of the midfield, I mean, I think it, it took us all by surprise on tour when um, Ten Hag said that he would mould a player from the squad to fill that role if he if he couldn't sign De Jong. Um, when what we've been hearing from United was that there was plans B, C and D, and I'm, I'm sure a bit of that was intended for, for Barcelona's ears. I would imagine, I mean, it feels like, I mean, there's, De Jong's cleaning up and playing against Brighton and the midfield against Brighton, it feels like there's two starters nailed on, which is Fred and Fernandez. And then after that, it's it's who fills the third role. McTominay is is probably ahead of Van der Beek. Um, I guess the, the wild card is is Christian Eriksen, um, in that Ten Hag described De Jong in that same sit down in Melbourne as the holding midfielder. So he clearly sees him as someone to play that that deep role. And I, I came away from that with the impression that he might be considering uh, De Jong, Eriksen, Fernandez midfield, which would seem bordering on the suicidal in, in some games, but it'll be interesting to see sort of what role Ericsson has to play, whether it is just a sort of a high calibre squad player or whether he does consider a midfield next week, say, of Fred, um, Fernandez and, and Ericsson. I think Fred was Fred was good on tour. Uh, he was particularly good in the Palace game, I think it was, and um, Ten Hag talked about him playing the, the connector role, I think it was, and he was regularly dropping deep between the two centre-backs. He was picking the ball up from the centre-backs. We know that's what De Jong does and what De Jong wants to do. So it does feel as if he might be looking at, at someone like Fred to maybe play that role until De Jong arrives or more permanently if he doesn't arrive. I think we all agree on that though, Ty. If you start with that midfield against Brighton, it might work, obviously. But against Liverpool for the game of the season, it's yeah. they're going to get overwhelmed, aren't they? You'd think yeah, so, yeah. Exactly. Um, Samuel, I noticed uh, Harry Maguire obviously was starting on the right side of central defence on Twitter, which was quite an interesting tactical tweak. He's obviously played there for England and, and Ranya kind of played him there a few games. Um, does that suggest that Martinez, who's obviously just been announced this week, is coming in to start on that left side? Do you think he'll start against Brighton? I suppose it depends how how he adjusts um, over the next over the next week. He's obviously been training with them this week. He playing the practice uh, the behind closed doors game against Wrexham on was it Tuesday or Wednesday? Uh, obviously, our colleague Rich Fay did, did great coverage of that. Um, there's a hell of a lot of information to, to glean from that in terms of the scoreline, the lineup, and whatnot. But when we asked, I mean, I think it was during the sit down, we we asked Martinez, sorry, we asked Martinez, we asked Ten Hag, is, is Martinez coming in to strengthen the, the squad or the team? He said the team. And then he was asked, does does Maguire's captaincy status indicate that he's first choice? And he says, he said yes, effectively. So he thinks it, it does. So it's he, he he would be taking a chance with, with that defensive pairing. Um, United wants to play a high line. And of course, with Martinez and Maguire, you've not got two particularly quick centre backs, which is an issue in itself. In that you look at the other, the other centre backs in, in, at the top Premier League teams, whether it's uh, Van Dijk and Konate or um, Laporte and, and Diaz, there is there's some pace there. There's a lot of pace in Liverpool's, and there's some pace in City's. In United's, with those two, there's there's not a great deal. Martinez has been brought in for other qualities um, that, that that Ten Hag, I'm sure, will will divulge as the season goes ahead. And 
maybe they'll be apparent in the way that, that Martinez plays. But with a high line, you leave space in behind. And if you've not got someone able to, uh, with, with that recovery pace to get a challenge in, that's that's something that the opposition can can exploit. And we said it in, in Australia that the centre-back with probably the best skill set for that is, is Baye, but he's fifth-choice centre-back. And United are prepared to to sell him. Of, of the back four, Luke Shaw is probably the quickest, but he, he certainly didn't get the memo in, in Melbourne where he was caught high up because in Perth, I think there are at least two occasions in the second half where he was caught high up the pitch and he didn't get back quickly enough when Leon Bailey had come on and, and was starting to terrorise the United's defence. Dallow's pretty quick, but I don't think he's quick to the point that he, where you'd be quite comfortable with him going on a... On, on a sprint and, and preventing a, an opponent from having a one-on-one. So as, as fascinating as the approach is from Ten Hag, he is, he's taken a risk with defence and there's every chance that United might start against Brighton with Maguire and Lindelof as the starting centre-backs because it seems like Varane, remarkably, has been relegated to fourth choice in that Lindelof has been starting ahead of him on tour. And... In fairness, when Varane came on against Villa, he he didn't cover himself in glory. He he got outpaced quite quite easily by by Bailey. Um, the the suspicion on tour was that he couldn't do double sessions as well. Already, you know, you mentioned you mentioned Varane. I think some people are starting to think Bastian Schweinsteiger, unfortunately, and that it's another expensive, aging, uh, brittle, uh, marquee name that United have have bought. Um, up until a point last season, I think Varane was was pretty much getting away with uh, the, the way United were defending because he did some he did avoid being present in most of the thrashings that that they suffered until, of course, the Brighton match where it was him and Lindelof at centre back. So although they have brought in two two defenders, it's it'll be interesting to see what what happens and whether and and, and just how long Ten Hag maintains um, you know c- keeps Maguire as his as his first choice. I mean, Maguire, in fairness to him, he had a strange, a pretty variable tour in that he missed the first game. Second game, he was off the pace for Melbourne's goal. Third game, he got booed, but played well. And in the fourth game, he played well as well. Um, he, he does not retain the, the confidence of, of that dread dressing room unanimously. He, he absolutely doesn't. There are players in there who either don't rate him as a captain or don't rate him as a player or both. And he's got a lot to prove. And I would imagine that he's probably desperate that Ronaldo goes because that would be a big weight off his shoulders because Ronaldo's just just his presence alone uh, I, I think it's it's safe to say that Maguire was cowed by that last season and also um, Ronaldo to say the least has misgivings about Maguire's status in that team. If we move on I'll stay with that theme then Ty I think off the top of my head I think it was six players who started each game on pre-season and Jaden Sancho was one of them. Obviously, Lindoff was, as Samuel's kind of just mentioned. And he started on the right wing, which was the position he was brought to the club to play in. He would be doing doing everyone a favour if he could find some form in that position, wouldn't he? Because United have got a clear lack of options in that position. Yeah, absolutely. It, it would be a, a godsend, really, if he could find form there. And he looked he looked really good on, on tour, I think, in that front three. He looked really sharp, full of confidence, happy to take players on. He, he ended up on the left next year in... I mean, he was signed to play that right wing position, but I think his his final season at Dortmund was basically split into into thirds. I think he played a third at a time on the right, a third on the left, and a third at number ten. So he's not solely a right winger. 
Um, but it, it, he can certainly play that position and United are desperate for someone to play there. It, it is the graveyard shift of of that front three. But Sancho looked looked really confident playing it, I thought, on tour. The, the first game against Liverpool, he, he, um, I mean, he was playing against the rookie left-back. So rookie, I can't even remember his name. Um, and But there was one incident where Luke Shaw played a crossfield pass to him and he basically controlled it by flicking his right leg behind his left just to bring it down. And I mean, he had lots of space to do it and it was a, a crowd-pleasing trick and it did please the crowd. But it's the type of thing you do when you're, you know, when you're very confident. I mean, I've not seen any of us do it at five-a-side. So it's clearly, you know, it's it, it, it said, I sensed at that time that he'd come back and had enjoyed his time on a ten and was playing with confidence. And I think we saw that grow through the tour and he can certainly play that role. There is a, a trend these days for inverted wingers cutting in on their stronger foot, which I think is partly why he ended up on the left next year. But we, we mentioned it, I mentioned a couple of times now on, on this podcast that if you take Tad Dusan Tadic at Ajax under Tenag, for example, he played right wing, cutting in onto his left foot, played at false nine, and then last year played left wing, just going outside his man on his left foot. So he's he's very flexible when it comes to building attacks, I think, Ten Hag. And I, I think Sancho is going to be playing on the right wing a lot this season, certainly at the start of the season. It was interesting on tour that they hardly ever switched either. There was the odd spelling games where they might switch, but generally... There, there was very, very little switching. I would say 95% of the time it was Sancho on the right and Rashford or in the Melbourne victory game, Alanga on the left. It didn't feel like there was much swapping of wings at all. Um, so they felt pretty settled there. And it would it, it allows United a bit more freedom as well in, in the transfer market because we mentioned Anthony before him. I think he was being signed with a view to that right wing role, offers a left foot option. With Sancho's form now, you can almost, especially the fee Ajax are asking, you can you can shunt him down the list of priorities because he's not he's not going to get in a team ahead of Sancho. I don't I don't see that happening. I don't really see him playing at centre forward. I mean he's pretty he's pretty short, I think, as a as a centre forward. I don't think he's played there for Ajax at all. So um in a way his signing is is less important now, especially the fee Ajax are asking for for someone who is still hugely unproven in, in European football. It can allow you to look at signing a centre forward or, or someone a bit more a bit more versatile in the attack, but it does feel like Sancho is going to get a, a lot of game time on the on the right wing this season, and it's probably going to stay there for most, if not all, of the season. I'd just like to add that piece of skill that Sancho did has never been so at five aside because we can't get a game organised. Our colleagues that's let true, us know. Yeah. 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 Very, very fair. Um, we'll end the podcast. I obviously, didn't want to start with this because it's it's last season. I kind of want to sweep it under the carpet, but it was kind of too good not to mention. Samuel, we watched uh, this morning Chris Armas's interview on the Crack Podcast on YouTube. There were some extraordinary quotes that came from that. I think you sent to me that he said Ranjik's never failed. Another quote was that he steadied the ship. My favourite was you'd love a team of Freds. Um, so, what did you make of that podcast? Really, because it was like I say, it was comedy gold. Really, wasn't it? It, it was. I. I... I did feel a bit sorry for him in that he he seems like a, a very amiable chap and enthusiastic, and he got the offer of his life to to coach coach Manchester United, having been I think he was sacked by Toronto in in July last year. So it's just something that you know football has this wonderful habit of you know amazing us and um, and, and throwing up stories that you could never have imagined, and and that was one of them. But unfortunately for for Chris Armas, he he did in that chat he just conformed to the stereotypical image of 
uh, an American soccer personality, whether it's a coach or or a player, um, that the naivety was pretty pretty breathtaking, really, when he's talking about the media side of it and how how overwhelming he f- found that and that the, the media was was against them. I, I don't think the media was ever against United last season. The fact of the matter was they were just so bad that criticism was coming every, every week practically and. They were so bad to the point that you you had to declare open season on them and they were getting both barrels most of the time as well. Um, I mean, to have said that Ralph Rangnick has never failed, I know, I know he's obviously a, a Rangnick acolyte, but I, 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 you know, sometimes you're just, you are literally lost for words. Um, it, it, it was, I mean, John Murta has done well to emerge from that whole experiment you know, relatively unscathed because it was his idea to to get Rangnick in as an interim manager, and just you only have to look at the the results that they they suffered, particularly from February onwards, um, to realise what a what an absolute disaster um, it was. And Rangnick was great for us because he was he, he dropped truth bombs every week at Carrington and. He was fascinating company, whether it was on Zoom and then when it went to in-person press conferences, it was even better. But he was he was a terrible manager and he managed like someone who had not managed in, well, he barely, what was it, 81 games in, in 10 years, I think he'd coached um, with, with with Leipzig. He, he'd, he was an administrator and if United were to have appointed him, they should have appointed him as, as, as a football director. And there would have been infinite merit in that because he, he talked a very good game and his analysis was, was pretty sound, but he should never, ever have been managing Manchester United. And frankly, it was pretty staggering when Solskjaer was sacked. I, I'd do a Q and A and some of the questions coming in would be like, Oh, is Ralph Rangnick under consideration as permanent manager? Um, somehow he had this, cult following out there on the internet it might have been one of our um we, we encountered someone in thailand actually um or, or i did a, a taxi driver who took me from bangkok airport to to my hotel was um a Schalke fan unbelievably uh when we so asked well. why when, when we asked why he just said internet uh, <laughs> we, we i think it was best that we didn't mention ralph rangnick's name otherwise we might have been um doing a a, a tour of all bangkok talking about him so you know, going back to the Armas chat, as I said, I think he, he just comes across as extremely naive. It's it's very, I, I mean, it's it's quite amusing that he's asked one of our colleagues to be fired over something that that he wrote. I, I hasten to to add, it wasn't anything that was written by anyone from the MEN. It was someone at, at another outlet. But you know, it's it, it was a fascinating insight into you know being in that position where you are getting bombarded with with criticism and um, and and people are you know not pretty unpleasantly and Gary Neville said it at the time how he didn't like it the whole Ted Lasso thing and they, they were taking the mickey behind his back some some of the players were referring to Rangnick as specs which is just it's deplorable you know playground bullying behavior really really unedifying and United have you know they've fumigated the dressing room um to, to an extent I suppose and that you know some there are some personalities there. Not, I'm not saying those personalities were responsible for those nicknames or anything like that, but there are some personalities there who are no longer there. And even just the squad numbers this week, uh, I mean, it's 
you know, they're, they're, it's logical to give Martinez a centre back, a centre back's number and six. It's logical to give Ericsson the number fourteen shirt. Um, you can even think of the the, the Ajax thread there as well, given um, the Cruyff wore that number. But those two are also good professionals who seem genuinely uh, thrilled to be at United and their predecessors. Let's face it, since they stepped out of United, they've just confirmed what we all knew, which is that they are. They are brand obsessives. Um, I have not watched Paul Pogba's documentary and I will not be watching Paul Pogba's documentary. And I think Nottingham Forest need to take a long, hard look at themselves when Jesse Lingard holds out for as long as he does for a new club and eventually plumps for a team that are playing in the Premier League for the first time in 23 years. And he only signs a one-year contract, but he gets to have his his nickname on the back of the shirt and he gets to promote his brand and they're beside themselves because they've got the great Jesse Lingard playing for them. Um, as, as, as curmudgeonly as I sound, it would have been interesting to have heard Brian Clough's thoughts on that if, if he was still around to, to have witnessed the signing. I couldn't help but notice Ty's face halfway through that answer when you mentioned a Bangkok and a taxi and you put them two words together. Oh. Yeah, almost triggering his PTSD there. So his face like, oh. I forgot about that. Yeah, the, the the crash and yeah. Oh god. The yeah, guy, yeah. The guy didn't well, know where he was going. I mean, I'd I'd like to think most people in Bangkok. Um, if, if any are listening, please correct me if I'm wrong. But I'd like to think most people in Bangkok have heard of the Shangri La Hotel. It's, it's you know it's where most of us were staying, and it must be one of the best known hotels in the city. But this guy you could have told him, can you take me to Mars? And he'd have got us closer to Mars than the, than the, than the Shangri-La Hotel. But, but we emerged unscathed. We just emerged unscathed. I, I just remember Ty at the time, because I think he was dozing a bit in the back. Seat. I was, yeah. And he just kept on saying repeatedly, this is not happening. This is not happening. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's been a long day. Ty, yeah. it might be a bit of a stupid question, but I'll leave the last word to you. Obviously, we've talked about Armas and, and Ranjik and their failures. What are the main differences? Because I know you've wrote about Ten Hag's training this summer and the difference he's making. What do you think the main differences are between the training sessions in the last six months and now? Um, I think these ones are good. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, a bit, it's a bit of a simplistic um, situation, but you know, there, there, were, there was people we were talking to on tour who said you could see the writing on the wall under Ranjik within a couple of weeks really and and you know we've both written before how the players simply didn't didn't take to his methods and coming in as a coach like Ranjik in reality we'd heard of him because we're all bordering on football obsessives I guess and he gave a lot of interviews to English media he's very high profile footballers when they go home don't really want to read about football you know you don't always want to take your job home so it's understandable they haven't heard of him and he didn't win them over with their session with the sessions and, and didn't improve them but think you know the, the noticeable thing from the open training sessions in in Bangkok and Perth was how involved Ten Hag was um you know he was he was front and center of every session which Ranjik wasn't which Solskjaer wasn't and I think the players are, are benefiting from that um you know there's from what I've heard there's a theme running through every session and at the end of the session you can see what you've got out of it and when you're getting that as players I think you've got trust in the man who's running them then when you go on a in a game and all right it's only pre-season but they were going to those four games and what they worked on in training was happening in those games and i think when that's happening you automatically trust that manager and think he knows you know he knows what it's what is what is happening here he knows what is what is good for us and by all accounts it's you know it, it is better than 
um, what was being served up under Ranić and Solskjaer. He's 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 bang on it. He's got every detail there, and I think the players uh, the players feel like they're improving for it compared to what they were getting under under Ranić. And I think you know I, I mentioned a couple of times in the summer that I thought players would improve just for training. You can kind of see it with Rashford already this summer that he has got better the longer he spent with Ranić, and I think that's going to be the case just because. They, they're getting elite-level coaching now, which, to a degree, they, they weren't really last season. I think we'll just leave it there, gents, if that's all right. Thank you, Samuel, for your company today. Thank you very much, Stephen. And thank you, Ty. Thanks for your time. No problem. Thank you, Stephen. And thanks to listeners, as usual. Take care.